Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Friday, January 22nd. Coming up, the Prime Minister saying today, don't book a spring break trip, and if you've got one booked, cancel it. We'll cover that. Plus, the Governor General, of course, has resigned. Does the process of selecting a Governor General need to change? Plus, we'll talk to IOC member Dick Pound about this report that perhaps the Tokyo Games are about to be canceled once again. A scathing new report regarding vaccines and long-term care homes tabled yesterday. All of that coming up on the podcast right now. All right, friends, we have made it. Yes, we have made it. It is Friday. It is January 22nd, 2021, and we have got a lot to get through. We're going to start with the reports today that the Tokyo Olympics may indeed be canceled once and for all. According to the Times of London, Japan's government has come to a quote-unquote internal decision to cancel the games and focus instead on another bid in 2032. Now, this Times article goes on to say that the Japanese government has privately concluded that they have no choice, no choice, but to cancel the Tokyo Games for a second straight year due to health concerns related to the pandemic. Now, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, they're denying that the Games are once again in jeopardy. But can they be held? And maybe more importantly, should they be held? We have got the guest on this, Canadian and former IOC Vice President Dick Pound. He will share his thoughts on this coming up in an hour from now. All right, Dick Pound joining us at the top of our second hour. And, of course, we've also got the very latest on the historic resignation of Julie Payette, the now former Governor General, walking away yesterday after after a scathing, scathing report on a toxic workplace environment while she was in charge. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, making his first public remarks on the matter about 90 minutes ago. And have a listen to this. Here was the Prime Minister. He was asked if he feels he owes anyone an apology for picking Julie Payette. As a government, we've demonstrated time and time again how important it is uh, to create workplaces that are free and safe from harassment uh, and, uh, and in which uh, people can, uh, uh, can do their important jobs uh, in, uh, in safety and, secu- uh, and security. Uh, that is why we moved forward on significant measures uh, for Parliament, for the public service, uh, and why uh, we consider uh, that uh, uh, we needed to accept uh, the resignation of uh, Julie Bayet, given the uh, concerns that were raised. All right, that's the Prime Minister. Now, we've got plenty more on this. We will also hear from a, a political science professor out of Dalhousie University about uh, just how unusual and how historic this is that a governor general would resign, step away uh, in this uh, fashion, and whether or not it's time to maybe look at the role of governor general. Should it be something that is democratically elected or should the governor general's role even exist in 2021 in beyond do we need a representative of the queen in ottawa you know in the years moving forward we're going to discuss all of that coming up but also during his daily briefing today the prime minister with a uh, warning for canadians not to make any spring break travel plans have a listen to this no one should be taking a vacation abroad right now if you've got one planned Cancel it and don't book a trip for spring break. It's obvious we should avoid trips south and out of the country. But remember, across the country, people are being told to stay home. 
So if you were thinking of traveling across the country for spring break, now's not the time. All right, let's welcome in our travel expert. Here's Marty Firestone. He joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm all right. I'm okay. Thanks. Uh, listen, uh, hard to tell if that message was to Canadians in general or considering recent uh, reports, Marty, this was a message to uh, Justin Trudeau's fellow politicians. I don't know. I think it's to all of us. I think there's something brewing. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear in the next couple of days some new travel restrictions, which I can only imagine what they probably are. All right, because uh, what we just heard from the Prime Minister there, uh, Marty, that was basically, I don't want to call it, I guess, a warning, a warning or an advisory, uh, or was it something more, do you think? It's got to be more. We've got the advisory already. We have the warning. So what's the next move to do? Potentially go from a level three to a level four travel advisory, which would basically say avoid all travel, not just non-essential. That would basically leave Canadians stranded abroad, which I think constitutionally that, that that's really opening up a uh, can of worms. All right. So you think there's something more that he's kind of laying the groundwork uh, for something uh, to come, something more to come? No question. He's more or less telling you that when you do complain that you need to be repatriated, he is going to say, I told you so. So I think that's what's being set up right now. It is somewhat reminiscent of early on in the first wave of the pandemic uh, when the prime minister famously said, if you're abroad, it is time to come home. So that that's the similar message here, but uh, maybe, you know, even a more serious one here, considering the fact that you're right, that some Canadians may end up, uh, you think, you, you believe, could end up uh, stranded abroad? Absolutely. So the message before, it's identical, but except he didn't tell you in, in November of the previous year, don't travel or, or go away because I'm going to not bring you back. There was no reason to talk that way. Now he has told you not to travel. So if you do, and then he imposes that sort of get back here in 10 days or something like that, you're going to be stranded because he's not even giving you that option to come back. He's saying you're out of luck. That's the problem. All right. And even if uh, you were to travel or were thinking about uh, traveling, uh, we also wanted to mention here this afternoon, Marty, there's new rules in place if you're thinking about, uh, I mean, obviously, when we think about spring break, uh, you know, our minds wander to uh, Florida, the southern uh, U.S. in particular when it comes to spring breaks of the past. But if you were even thinking about uh, heading there and maybe not so much after the prime minister's words here today, but there are new rules in place in the U.S. That's correct. So, just think about the moment you decide to make a trip now. You have to first go get a negative COVID test to be eligible to get into the U.S. Then you get to the U.S. and supposedly you're going to sit upwards of 14 days in the U.S. now in a quarantine period. That's kind of bizarre. That's your vacation is maybe those two weeks. And then go get another negative COVID test to come back into Canada. So traveling has just become extremely difficult with all these layers that they're putting in. And that should probably be enough to deter travel. But evidently it may not for some. That's the problem. Yeah, And correct me if I'm wrong, you are to quarantine when you come back to Canada for upwards of 14 days as well. So if you did decide to travel, you're talking about a month of going nowhere, 28 days. You are. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. And worse than that, you're also spending money on two COVID tests, okay? So they could be upwards of 180 a test. All of a sudden, it becomes expensive. It becomes who can be away from work for like, well, although you're still working from your house. But at the end of the day, this two-week trip is turning into a five-week trip at best, and it's going to be just a mess. Yeah, is this a signal from leaders? I mean, obviously, it's the incoming Biden administration that's putting these new rules in place. But is this a signal from the U.S. government, Marty, and elsewhere in the world that international travel is really problematic, has become problematic when it comes to the spread of COVID? 
Yes, 100%. The only way they're going to beat COVID, I believe, at the end of the day, is to totally shut down the borders and stop travel altogether. That's the only way we can sort of keep ourselves protected from this. I think they're all very worried about this variant strain also. This is a very scary thing, what's going on with that. Yeah, without a doubt. Marty, appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Have a happy and safe weekend. My pleasure. You too. Take care. That's our travel expert, Marty Firestone, on the latest from the uh, Prime Minister. As you just heard, telling Canadians not to travel. And if you're thinking about spring break and you've made spring break uh, travel plans, you're to cancel them, in the words of the uh, Prime Minister. Uh, For all... Uh, High-level appointments, there is uh, a rigorous vetting process that was followed uh, in this case. Uh, Obviously, uh, we will continue to look at uh, that vetting process to ensure uh, that it is the best possible process uh, as we move forward. All right, there's the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, being asked about the vetting process, which, of course, has come under scrutiny with the resignation of Governor-General Julie Payette. And for more on the resignation and where do we go from here and uh, what does the Governor-General's role look like in other commonwealths and other countries, let's welcome in Lori Turnbull from the Department of Political Science at Dalhousie University. She joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Lori, good afternoon. Appreciate your time. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Okay, lots of questions surrounding the vetting process when it comes to our now former Governor General. Can you kind of detail for us uh, what it is, and uh, did it change? Uh, We understand it changed when Justin Trudeau came to power. Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of the the vetting process for some of these appointments, like it's quite internal, and it's never really something that we're given a step-by-step process and we really know anything about. But for this, um, for vice regal appointments, Prime Minister Harper had a committee that he used that didn't take the decision from him, but gave him some advice and getting kind of, you know, probably gave him some some sort of, you know, sense of who the candidates are are that could be considered and, you know, who might they be thinking about. And so there was a little bit more of that step was present with Prime Minister Harper, but it wasn't used in this process for that appointed um, Julie Payette. All right. So Prime Minister Trudeau, it was basically uh, his sole decision and his sole vetting uh, process when it came to uh, Ms. Payette? I mean, they would there would still have had to have been some vetting, but at the same time, like I think it's pretty clear it was it was the prime minister's decision. It's always the prime minister's decision. Anything that comes to him can only be advice because constitutionally it's you know it's the queen's appointment, but it's on the advice of the prime minister, and she would never kind of choose someone who the prime minister didn't recommend. And so the decision is his. Yeah. So is that a discussion we need to be having coming out of this? Do you think that the vetting process, uh, that talk is already happening and going on uh, right now, whether we need to go back to what former Prime Minister Harper did or maybe even look at uh, some other vetting process? Yeah, like, I I mean, we, the Prime Minister said this morning that, you know, he's going to be reconsidering the process. And I mean, he's going to have to, right? because there's going to be a lot of questions around how did this happen? How did you miss this? How are we going to make sure we didn't, we don't end up in this situation again? And so, like, we can think about different ways of doing it. I, can, I wouldn't um, rule out going back to that idea of the committee, because, I mean, not only does it, you know, put some other people in the room and, and you know, kind of get a sense of who's who's out there and who might be a really good choice. But it gives the prime minister a little bit of a buffer from the outcome of the decision if it goes, if it doesn't work out, like it, because now, like he's really the person, you know, the buck stops with him. It always does. But this time, you know, that even that committee that could give him a little bit of a, a sense of a, of a consensus around the sure. out there. Yeah, was that committee? Do you know bipartisan? Uh it. 
If I'm remembering correctly, and I might be wrong, it's not, it wasn't the parliamentary committee, but I'm not really sure, you know, I mean, I can remember when there was a parliamentary committee to look under Harper to look at judicial appointments. And so it's possible it could be, I mean, that's an idea, right? That's an idea on the table. It could be a parliamentary committee. It could be an external committee. It could be something that reports kind of, you know, fairly quietly to the prime minister. There's all different kinds of ways that, that we could organize it. But also, I think there has to be there has to be an articulation of what are we looking for in a governor general. Well, one of those ways that you could vet for a governor general is by taking it to the people. And there has been some talk uh, about changing the governor general to something that is maybe uh, democratically uh, elected. Is that something that maybe we should be looking at? I mean, like on the one hand, I think there's a a few issues at play. Like one question for me is under this model that we have now where the prime minister appoints a governor general who ends up then having quite a a considerable role to play constitutionally, where does that governor general get the legitimacy that, you know, they need to do the job? And especially when something like this happens, right, like how, you know, that, that office is going to need to build legitimacy again. And so where does that come from? And if you elect someone, there's your legitimacy. Right. Like it's there's there's a kind of public mandate for the person and there's support for the person. The downside of that is that when you elect a person, then that person has a mandate. And so elect them to do what? Right. Like what would what would be the person's kind of like what else would they do apart from wait for a constitutional crisis to happen, crisis to happen and do the ceremonial stuff like that stuff is important. But then I'm not really sure, you know what you do with that kind of national elected mandate. And even the prime minister doesn't really have that in the same way, right? Like the prime minister is an MP and the prime minister is the person with the confidence of the house. But imagine if we had a governor general that was elected by national referendum, like that would be, that would be a considerable mandate, but then I'm not sure what they do with it. Right. That could become problematic if perhaps the governor general and the prime minister were butting heads uh, on something. And could the governor general then say, well, listen, I've got more of a, (laughs) a mandate than you do. You bet. And then, you know, and if there was an election for that position, certainly the parties would engage it. And so it would be completely different. If you elected it, it would totally transform what that function is in in the whole system. Joined on the line by Laurie Turnbull, Department of Political Science at Dalhousie University, discussing the resignation of Canada's governor general and what that role should look like uh, moving forward. Are there any lessons, Laurie, that we can learn from other countries, other uh, commonwealths, uh, Australia, for example, when it comes to the governor general? Well, I mean, there are some, like, I think there, every system, you know, has a kind of, you know, the, the process around what the governor general is and how that process is selected. I mean, for every commonwealth country, it is essentially a prime ministerial appointment, anyone that, that I know anything about anyway. Um I think what we can learn from other countries is some of the other things they do. So, for instance, um, other other Commonwealth countries have something called the Cabinet Manual. And even though um, it doesn't change the law and it doesn't change the Constitution, it's kind of a set of, of rules and guidelines for how the primary actors govern themselves. And a manual like that would probably articulate something like, here's the role of the Governor General, here's what we expect that person to do. There's a place where you could put, for instance, you know, we have an expectation of a vetting process that looks like this, and maybe there will be advice to the prime minister from people like this, right? Like, and then you can sort of have this expectation that the, even though it is a prime ministerial appointment, that there is some transparency around it, and there's some you know, way of making it based on whether it's principles or rules or whatever, so that there's some accountability to people over how that position is filled. Finally, a lot of chatter online, uh, well, first and foremost, is whether or not Celine Dion should be our next governor general. 
But aside from that, uh, a lot of people are talking about whether or not we even still need a Queen's representative in Ottawa, a governor general in 2021 and beyond. Uh, You know, the governor general, the the role is largely ceremonial, obviously. And, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, many Canadians that can remember, you know, kind of a single speech a governor general has made. So is there a case to be made for maybe, you know, saying goodbye to that position? I mean, I've heard that argument a lot, and that's, that argument certainly precedes this particular case. The trouble with it is, I mean, in certain ways, I can imagine a scenario where we don't have that role, right? Like, so for instance, a cabinet swearing in or a cabinet shuffle, as we saw last week, you know, like it can be a very rudimentary ceremony. And you can, even if it's a, a really, you know, you know, big thing, probably the prime minister and the clerk of the Privy Council can handle that. Like some of the ceremonial stuff, we could get someone else to do it. The trouble is if you start pulling the position out of the Constitution, our Constitution doesn't actually refer to the prime minister. It refers to the governor general and the Queen's Privy Council. And, you know, so we'd have to change all that. And so, for instance, like even appointing senators, the prime minister makes the decision but he gives it as advice, and then the governor general does it. And so if we said, okay, we're going to take out the governor general part, maybe we just acknowledge outright that the prime minister is the one who makes the decisions on who's the senator. But then it's like, well, okay, why would we have a Senate that was like 105 people appointed by the prime minister? Why wouldn't we have an elected Senate? Or why would he have a Senate at all? So then other things start changing. And so even, you know, if, and even on the confidence side, if a prime minister lost confidence, then what? There are other ways to handle it, but we have to come up with a way. And so the trouble is if you start pulling that piece out of the Constitution, the rest of it doesn't remain intact. We'd have to build the whole thing up again. Yeah, because I was thinking a lot of people would say, listen, my company has had to uh, streamline and uh, downsize over the last uh, several years. Would it be such a bad thing if Ottawa or government uh, had to do that? But as you indicate, it's a little more complicated than just that. Uh, We are talking about uh, rewriting the way that uh, government does business. That's it. Yeah. And it would it would be as difficult as that. All right. Laurie, really appreciate the uh, time. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much uh, for this and have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for having me on. All right. Laurie Turnbull is with the Department of Political Science at Dalhousie University. As we mentioned off the top, according to the Times of London, Japan's government has come to an internal decision to once again cancel the Summer Olympic Games and focus instead on another bid for 2032. Now, this article in the Times goes on to say that the Japanese government has privately concluded that they've got no choice but to cancel the Tokyo Games for a second straight year due to health concerns regarding the pandemic. Dick Pound is a proud Canadian member of the International Olympic Committee. He is the group's former vice president. He is on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mr. Patton, good afternoon. I really appreciate your time with us. Not at all. Glad to be on. All right. What do you know about this uh, report? Uh, is the Japanese government, are they close to pulling the plug on the Olympics again? I, I think probably the most surprised people on the face of the planet hearing about that story. It's, it, how come we didn't know we had decided that? No, I, they, they are full speed ahead. I, I suspect maybe somebody at the Times will be working on his new CV, but... Uh, no, we we had a, actually a, had a, an IOC meeting yesterday uh, remotely, uh, about three hours, and and uh, all reports uh, are, uh, you know, the, the virus can be brought under control, the the, the bubble can be created, uh, the games will go on, uh, certainly the uh, all the Olympic side of things uh, 
are, are committed to it. So, no, there's no absolutely no truth to that story at all. All right. Is it the IOC's feeling that uh, by the time the games were to be held later this summer, that uh, the world situation in regards to the pandemic will be uh, much different, look uh, a lot better than it does currently? I think that's that is the expectation. Uh, that, you know, and and we've got we've got first of all the summer months, which are you know the lowest uh, incidence of, of uh, the virus. We've got the vaccines coming online. We've got the ability to test very quickly. Uh, you know, you're going to be, if you're coming from Canada, you'll be tested before you get on a plane to Tokyo. You'll be tested when you arrive. You'll be tested every second day. Uh, it, in that respect, you learn more about the the virus every week or every month. So, it, you know, that that focus on on uh, creating the bubble is is going to be fine. I'd say there's probably some issue uh, about the uh, level of spectators that, that uh, will be able to, to watch in person. But, uh, uh, and, and I, I suspect that in, you know, in some sports where it's outdoors, uh, you know, it'll be a little more relaxed, but if you're in a 3000 seat boxing arena, um, that might be a little different, but uh, all that said, the, um, the, the spectators are, are, are nice to have, but not must haves. And 99.5% of the people around the world that experience the Olympic Games um, do so uh, via television or some other electronic platform. So it's not going to make a, a lot of difference to uh, an overwhelming percentage of the Olympic spectators. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, sports obviously is something that brings a lot of us uh, comfort in what have been uh, very unsettling times. And I think we certainly all feel for our Olympians, the sacrifices, the training that they go through to get to this point. But with so much up in the air when it comes to things like vaccines and variants, I mean, you mentioned about spectators are a nice-to-have, not a must-have. Do you believe the Olympic Games, are they a must-have? Is it something that has to has to happen, has to go on? Should the Games go ahead? I think they should go ahead as, as long as it, you know it's safe, and that will be the the, the ultimate uh, measure of, of whether we do, in fact, go ahead. Uh, but, it, but if what we expect to happen um, does happen, we should go ahead because, you know, after what's going to be a year and a half of pretty awful conditions, uh, we need some good news. And we need something on a, a worldwide basis that's good news. So, uh, our, our, you know, we're watching, of course, uh, every day, every week as to what the conditions are. But if at all possible, and if it could be done safely, the games are a go. Well, you mentioned a couple of times about uh, bubbling. I was just wondering what the discussions have been at the uh, IOC, and is uh, bubbling, is it even possible for something like the Olympic Games, which you know obviously is an international, a worldwide event, We've seen some other sports. I'm thinking about the NHL in particular here in uh, hockey. Uh, they've gone with an all-Canadian division to keep uh, the teams and the players uh, within the country. Obviously, that's something that's uh, not possible, that type of bubbling uh, with something like the Olympic Games. Um, yes, you're right about that. And that's, you know, the, the measures that will be taken will be, first of all, to try and get as many uh, Olympic athletes vaccinated as possible. Secondly, you test them before they leave home. You test them on arrival. You test them every second day to make sure there's no uh, changes. Uh, that, that's a, a, a level of, of 
preventive measures that, uh, and you've got the social distancing, of course, the, the level of preventive measures that uh, can give you quite a lot of confidence, uh, especially once you're out of the real tough season uh, where we are right now. What's the uh, discussion and talk been about the Olympic uh, Village? I mean, obviously athletes uh, live uh, for those couple of weeks uh, during the Olympics in fairly close uh, quarters. Is that something that's uh, desirable or uh, should uh, happen with uh, the pandemic underway right now? Well, it, it, it's certainly manageable. And, and, uh, and, and it's such a central part of the Olympic experience that, uh, that uh, it should happen if it possibly can. And, and the, the Japanese who are, uh, they really have an A team in the field uh, for these games. Uh, they, they are satisfied that they can keep the Olympic Village uh, COVID free. And I want to ask you too about the opening ceremonies, if that has been discussed, uh, Mr. Pound, and whether or not uh, those can uh, happen uh, to, I mean, obviously it's one of the highlights of any Olympic Games is the kickoff in the opening ceremonies, but uh, can we truly bring uh, all of the athletes, spectators uh, or not uh, together to sort of celebrate the beginning and, and the end of the Games, the closing ceremonies? Well, I think <laughs> both of the ceremonies, which will be as colorful as as, uh, as ever, uh, will go on. I think they, they, instead of having uh, every one of the 12,000 athletes uh, that we expect over the course of the games to be there, uh, they're not going to be there. All be there for the uh, the uh, opening ceremony, and by the same token, because we're sending them home uh, with, within 48 hours of the finishing competition, uh, there won't be as many at the uh, closing ceremony because some of them have gone home. But but all of the elements of uh, symbolic and otherwise uh, that uh, are involved uh, will will occur and, and will be televised uh, around the world. And finally, those opening ceremonies are to happen July 23rd. Is there kind of a drop-dead date, if you will, that the IOC has on making a final decision as to whether or not these summer games, the Tokyo games, go forward? Go ahead. I, I, nobody's put a stake in the ground to say, all right, you know, it, this this date is, is is the decision day or not? I think you know we're, we find out more every week, every month about uh, COVID. So you know th- that intelligence will will uh, probably affect the the, the drop dead date. But you're you're looking at you know I, I'd say you know w- w- sixty days maybe. Sixty days out of uh, July twenty third. Yeah. All right. Former IOC uh, Vice President, member of the International Olympic Committee, uh, Dick Pound, with us this afternoon. Mr. Pound, really appreciate your time and have a safe weekend. Thank you. You too. A scathing new report regarding vaccines and long-term care homes tabled yesterday. And the group's findings, they say that the number of cases and deaths could have been averted if we just got more needles in more arms sooner. And joining us now for more on this is palliative care physician, he is a long-term care expert. Dr. Ahmed Arya is on the line, and he's back on the show here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Doctor, appreciate you joining us again. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. All right, let's talk about this uh, report. It was conducted by Science Table, and the author of this study, doctor, calls the decision not to immunize all long-term care residents first a, quote, breathtaking failure. What's your reaction? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, I absolutely agree with Dr. Stahl, Dr. McGeer, and many of the people on the front line, the long-term care physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, residents, their families. I mean, it was a simple logic, Jeff. I mean, we knew that seniors in long-term care have suffered and died uh, and are at the highest risk from COVID-19. We're in the middle of a second wave where we're seeing um, a big uptake in, like, the number of outbreaks happening in long-term care homes, the number of deaths. We're, we're have this, we, you know, we have this deadly variant now starting to circulate in our communities and in long-term care facilities. So it should have been very simple. The first 72, uh, the first 72,000 doses of our of our vaccines should have gone into the arms of people who lived in long-term care, and for some reason, that did not happen. Yeah, do we know the reasoning? Uh, has the government explained themselves? The vaccine task force. Well, to be very honest, I think it's a failure of leadership. It's a failure of planning. Um, You know, you asked about the vaccine uh, task force, so you mentioned them. So one of the problems is we don't have people who actually specialize in mass vaccination campaigns on that task force. It's kind of a, you know, like like a conundrum. You want the specialists who do this year in and year out on the actual task force in the middle of a global health emergency. So we have an auto parts CEO who resigned because she was traveling overseas. Uh, Clearly somebody disconnected from the, you know, the suffering and death that's happening here. We have a coroner, you know, we have somebody who's a tech CEO, we have a retired general, but we don't have public health. Public health, for some reason, has been sidelined, and they already have a system in place which uh, beautifully rolls out vaccinations year in and year out. We don't have family doctors. We don't have nurse practitioners and nurses uh, in, in this campaign. And just a reminder, I mean, we've only gotten to vaccinating around half of the long-term care residents in the province, whereas Quebec has uh, gotten to 75%. British Columbia is going to wrap up next week. And the province's target of vaccinating everyone by mid-February is going to be far too late. I mean, we're, we're in a situation where right now, I mean, I can tell you in the last 24 hours, um, you know, we had close to 50 people that died. There's about 171 deaths per week in long-term care, and one long-term care resident dies each hour. This is a race mm-hmm. against time. They need to pick up the pace and vaccinate as many residents as possible. And it really is staggering, uh, sorry to interrupt, but it really is staggering when you read this uh, report because they estimate, uh, had we vaccinated all long-term care residents by the end of the month, by the end of January, nearly 600 lives could have been saved. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we're in a situation where we're seeing exploding outbreaks happening from border to border across the province. Uh, even when these, um, you know, when experts and advocates uh, like Dr. Stoll, like myself, and many other people were bringing up these issues uh, in the public sphere, I mean, for some reason, the province then committed to vaccinating only four uh, regions of the province in terms of their long-term care homes by January the 21st. And that was a failure. I mean, we're hearing now of Roberta Place in Barrie, which is not in- included in those four regions. I mean, we're hearing of many long-term care homes outside those four regions, which uh, I, I don't know the reason. They've been left behind in the vaccination. And we heard from Roberta Place that the Moderna vaccine was actually diverted away, uh, you know, from Barrie to the GTA, which made no sense at all. They should have treated all long-term care homes as hotspots in themselves and gotten vaccines into arms. We had enough vaccine by the third week of December to get all long-term care homes done. Does this, Dr. Arya, does it make you question the advice uh, of the health table and uh, the decisions that are being made, the advice that's being given to General uh, Hillier and uh, the task force? I mean, are they making decisions, do you think, based on bad or faulty advice? Yeah, so I don't think it's the health table. The health table has presented, you know, completely accurate information, and I'm in complete agreement with what they've said. I I, I think the issue is, once again, 
I mean, we have sort of systems that are already in place that are used to, you know, providing mass vaccination campaigns successfully year after year, such as the flu shot. And who leads those campaigns? It's public health, it's family doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, and pharmacists. And those people were sidelined. Instead, we've relied on hospitals who are, as we know, are already going through their own problems with the second wave. Many of them are having to consider ration resources and so on. So we had hospital teams that went out um, to long-term care homes, and we then sort of prioritized this to make this happen in an even more fragmented fashion for only four regions of the province. And that really made no sense at all. We should have, re we should have relied on the systems that were already in place, and we should have made this a 24-7 operation. Once again, we're in a race against time, and I'm, I even read from earlier that you know they have slowdowns on the weekend and that just makes no sense at all the other data shows that i mean from the city of toronto for example that only 43 percent of health workers in long-term care are getting the vaccine and that's another flaw with how this is happening yeah and compounding all of this of course is the supply chain problem with pfizer that's going on right now we're we know we're getting no doses at all uh next week sadly does that uh, equate to or does that equal more deaths in long-term care well, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, of course, very worried about this. I mean, you know, once again, if we had put the needles in the right arms, uh, you know, in meaning the people who are most likely to die, the residents who live in long-term care, well, then maybe it would have been less of a worry, right, with this now this unexpected supply shortage. Uh, you know, the other thing is, is that it doesn't, you know, take us away from the basics, vaccine or no vaccine. I mean, we need to make sure that we have oversight and accountability for infection control in long term in all long term care homes, which is still a major issue. We need to make sure that we sort of have uh, urgent steps taken to address the staffing crisis. Many of these appalling scenarios where we hear in the media and we hear from family members, we hear from frontline staff who are in homes where people are going, you know, without basic care, without food and water are happening because there's not enough staff on the ground. So the province has to sort of undertake this massive recruitment campaign as soon as they can to get enough trained staff into these homes for infection control and to make sure people are not suffering from abandonment and neglect. Do we need the military back in? I know the Red Cross is at Roberta Place in Barrie that you mentioned a second ago. They were yeah. called in there. Uh, the Premier has talked about it but seems somewhat hesitant to call the military uh, back in this time around. Yeah, so I absolutely think that we need the military in uh, many of these homes which suffer from these big staffing crises. And, and just to repeat what happens, uh, it's very sad, and I, I just can't even believe that this is happening, Jeff, that people are not just dying from COVID-19. I mean, of course, those deaths were preventable, but people are dying from dehydration and hunger. And that's absolutely, it's, it, if I can be very frank, it's, 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 it's abhorrent, and it should never be happening. We should think of this like any other mass casualty scenario, like a plane crash, and we would, I mean, if something like that happened, it would be all hands on deck, all emergency services there. And if absolutely, if we need the military to help out, we need the military. One information that I can provide to the listeners is that the Red Cross has limited capabilities in terms of the help that they can provide. They don't provide nursing care. They're unable to feed the residents. And once again, as I just mentioned, those are those are huge gaps that are happening when staffing plummets in the midst of a COVID-19 outbreak. So yes, they need to call in the military. I mean, I, I really sense that maybe the Premier or the authorities in the province are scared about calling in the military because you know it might make them look bad but hey at the end of the day i don't care about any anybody's personal ego these are people's lives at stake it's a matter of life and death and that should always be the number one priority dr Ari, appreciate the time as always appreciate you thank you so much thanks jeff dr ahmed aria with us this afternoon